Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Academic Life, the podcast for your academic journey and beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Sharon McDougall, who is a spacesuit technician and the author of the new book, Suit Up for Launch with Shay. Welcome to the show, Sharon. Thank you for having me, Christina. Great to be here. I'm so excited that you're here and all the things that we're going to learn from you today. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Yes, my name is Sharon McDougall. I worked with the Space Shuttle Program for 22 years in the Space Shuttle Crew Escape Equipment Department, where we process the orange launch entry spaces worn by all astronauts that flew aboard the Space Shuttle. And I'm an author of a children's book, Food Up for Launch with Shay. I have so many questions for you. Um, my first one is, uh, what led you into this field? Well, my field actually tells me. After I graduated high school, I had no idea. Well, when I got to high school, I had no idea what I was going to do. I didn't have money to go to college. And then the Air Force recruiter came and spoke to my senior class around October, November, and I raised my hand to enlist right there on the spot, but I hadn't turned 18 yet. <laughs> and so he told me to come back when I'm 18 and take the test, and then we can get, enli- get me enlisted. And so that's what I did. And they go by your test scores to choose your career for you. And I was just fortunate enough that I did well enough to get chosen for aerospace physiology, which was my job in the Air Force. So it chose me. <laughs> what is aerospace physiology? It is the effects of flying at altitude, of course, on your body in a nutshell. So we trained the pilots on what to expect when they're flying, the different ways, like main, the main thing was hypoxia. So we would, would operate the altitude chamber, which is a hypobaric chamber, and the dive chamber, the hyperbaric chamber, which was mainly for the medical side. But for the uh, altitude chamber, we had to operate the altitude chamber. We were also inside observers, and the pilots would go inside the chamber, and we'd take them up to altitude, and at a certain altitude, we have to take their mask off so they can feel the effects of hypoxia of them not having oxygen go into their brain for so long and having to do basic little tests like bank left or bank right. Or we give them the little toy where they have to put the shapes in the right hole and they can't do it. And they don't realize how it affects them that they can't be like Tom Cruise and have their mask hanging off the side looking cool while they're flying. They have to have their mask covered so they don't get hypoxic and, and you know, hurt themselves or hurt somebody else. So you went straight uh, into the military from high school. A lot of people might assume that you have to go to college first or graduate school, and they trained you up for this. The Air Force trained me for my job at Space Program. They sure did. So, and it's on the job training, too. My technical school was only uh, six weeks. I'm sorry, it might have been a month. I can't remember. I think it was six weeks. And it was at the School of Aerospace Medicine where we learned about aerospace physiology. And then when I got stationed at Beale Air Force Base, because the SR-71 and the U-2 aircraft were housed there, uh, extra duty was working with the pressure suits. And so I learned that on the job once I got to my base, once I got assigned to my home base. And so that's why I learned to work on the pressure suits before I went to the space shuttle program. And are the pressure suits the iconic orange suits? Yes, but in the Air Force, they were a gold color. And the uh, the space program actually got the suits from the Air Force, not the other way around. So if you look back, you'll see some of the first uh, pictures of the astronauts with those uh, spacesuits on. They were gold, a goldish color, and they became orange later on. 
which is a universal health color. That's why they're orange and they can be seen easily if they bail out. So yeah, they're the same suit pretty much. They have, you know, you know, little slight differences, but overall the same suit. And your job became managing the equipment and these suits in particular, is that right? Yes, yes. The chamber, we would get in the chamber probably once a month. And I was there for seven years and a couple of months in the Air Force. And so the suits were our main job. It wasn't just extra duty. We actually had to fly to different countries in support of the missions, suiting up the pilots and getting strapped into the aircraft. And I did that, like I said, for the seven years I was in the service. And it would be every two months you'd rotate. It was called temporary duty. So two months I'd be in California, which is where my home base was, at Bill Air Force Base. And then for two months I'd be in Japan. I'd come back to California two months. Two months I'd be in Greece. Two months I'd be in Korea. Two months I'd be in England. Because that's where the planes flew out of to do their reconnaissance missions. These suits look like they would be difficult to put on yourself. They look like they might pose some challenges. Can you talk to us about what it's like to get them into the suits and what, what it might be like to wear the suit? Yes, it is cumbersome, but it can be done. You can put it on by yourself. But we train we train the astronauts to have the buddy system called, of course, we wouldn't be in space with them. So about a year out from launch day, they actually have about 20 to 25 uh, suited training events where they practice putting the suit on and off. And with that, I help them, too, to show the proper way. They'll have to show them the proper way to stow it so they don't damage it. So they have to roll it up a certain way so the neck, the metal parts aren't clicking and clicking and get stuck. And they put it in this big duffel bag, and they stow it away until it's time for them to put it back on when it's time to come back to Earth. Now, in the Air Force, they would fly. In the U-2, they fly a couple of hours, I mean, nine hours or so. And then in the SR-71, they fly for about two, two and a half hours. So once they take off, we suit them up, strap them in and everything. And then when they come back, we would take it off. Because, you know, they're not going to be in space for a week like the astronauts. <laughs> so we were there to help them. So we didn't have to train them so much on the suit as we did with the astronauts. And then after you left the military, you joined um, Boeing Aerospace? Yes, that was the first, yeah. Can you talk to us about... When you suited up Dr. May Jemison, that was definitely one of the top moments of my uh, space shuttle cr- program career because it was just amazing how it fell in place. Uh, I'd gotten out of the service. I'd separated in January of 1990, and I struggled when I got out because I had only worked with pressure suits and altitude chambers my whole adult life. You know, from 18 until 26. And I couldn't find employment. So I was working three part-time jobs. Uh, nobody would hire me full time. And I just couldn't believe it because I had such an awesome job and I did so great in the military. And now it's just like, it was like a slap in the face to reality check, you know. And I almost re-enlisted because I was having such a hard time. And all I was used to was the military, you know. And so uh, one of the guys that was in the Air Force with me was already out here in Houston working with the space program a few months before. I didn't, I had no idea he was. And he tracked me down and found me and, and told me that they had an immediate opening doing this exact same job that we did in the Air Force. And gave me a number. I called the supervisor, and they pretty much said, come down whenever you're ready. It was that easy. He had already spoken up for me, you know. So that's how I got to uh, work the space program. And I went all the way to the top without a college degree before I left, all the way to the top of my field. Can you take us to 1992? I got Mommy. Are you ready? Are you sitting? I'm ready. <laughs> So, well, before we get to 1992, I want to tell you about our first meeting 
and how I got assigned to suit up Dr. May. What happened was I got there in 1990, as I was alluding to earlier. Uh, July 1990, I arrived. She got assigned to her mission in 1991. I got there just in time. If I'd gotten there in 91, I would have been too new to the Boeing way of doing things, and I would not have been assigned to her mission. So it was just meant for me to send her up. So I was, uh, I got her a mission, and then she had to come in for her fit check, which is all that she's not supposed to get assigned. I have to come see our department to get a fit check, a suit fit check. So that's what we have. Uh, we have this, their street sizes, and we have all of their uh, equipment laid out to kind of match whatever their street sizes are, you know. So when they come in for the fit check, we measure and nip and tuck and, and figure out what sizes they wear so they'll have the proper sizes for when they start their year-long training before they're launched. And our first meeting, she the fit check room is a rather small, I don't say like a large closet, like a large walk-in closet. And it was myself and probably about six or seven white guys in the room. And I was kind of back off in the corner when she walked in. And, you know, everybody's like introducing and everything. And they directed her to go to the dressing room and put on her underwear, which are like long johns. And she came out and I was standing by the chair and we both gave each other that looked like, you did it. Like, you know, I just be professional. I could, I was giddy inside because this was like the first black woman to go in space and sitting right here. I'm meeting her for the first time. And I was, I was so excited. And so I walked her through everything, told her what we were going to do before I suited her up. And then I suited her up and, and I pressurized the suit. And like I said, I'm, I'm constantly talking to the crew members when I'm suiting, working with them, you know, make sure they know what's happening and, and what they're feeling and everything. Cause you know, when you're getting pressurized, your ears will start popping and things. And we pressurized them to about 3.2 PSI, 3.2 to 3.5 PSI. And so I bring her back down. I let her know that I'm her assigned spacesuit technician. I will be taking care of her for the entirety, all the way up to landing. And if there's anything she need or any questions, I was her girl. And so she trained for that whole time and we get to long. That morning, it was like electricity in the air. It was just like, it was, it's hard to explain because I was, I think I was more excited for her than she was. I was like the first black woman to go out of space and I'm part of and Oh my God, I'm here to take care of you. And, uh, so I was just super excited about the whole, that whole year. I think I missed one training event the whole time. And I always uh, tell everybody she had two sick, uh, spacesuit technicians because my name, she got me as her technician. I was still sharing cables. And then by the time she launched, I was Sharon McDougal. <laughs> I got married. So she had two technicians. And so when um, she came in the room, when they walk in, they're wearing their socks and their long john underwear. And she sat down. And it was kind of like that first day when I first saw her. And, you know, that little, like, giddy, like, little girly. We was like, oh, my God. <laughs> but inside, you know, we didn't do that on the outside. We were professional. And she sat down, and we go through it. I don't have to explain that to her because we've done this for a year now. So I just suit her up. And it only takes about five minutes to put the suit on because I'm helping her. You know, you put a leg, a leg, arm, arm, and you pop your head through the neck ring. Stand up. I go inside with my hands and make sure everything's nice and smooth before I zip it up. She sit down. I immediately put her boots on. Then I get the communications cap on, the helmet, and the last thing is the gloves. And then I pressurize it to make sure the suit is working properly, that she is getting oxygen to her helmet, and everything is good before she goes out to the pad. So after I depressurize her, I take the everything off except the suit and the boots, of course. The helmet and communication caps and cap and gloves get packed up into a bowling ball like bag, a bowling ball shaped bag, 
and it's carried down. The Astro Band is waiting downstairs, right in front of the operation in the checkout building, the ONC building. And so we carry the helmet bags down and place them in the van ahead of time before the crew walks out. And then when it's time, the crew will walk out. When you walk, when you see them walking out waving and they stand in front of the big silver band in front of the building and everybody's taking pictures, all the cameras and everything, they just left the room with us where we just did all their suit checks and everything. So I hugged the good mind and they went down and walked, got in the elevator and walked back all of the hoopla and the waves and the well wishes before they ride out to the paint, uh, out to the uh, space shuttle launch pad. And then they launch and we're waiting for when they land. And then when they land, is it the same process in reverse? Mm-hmm. Not so much because they, everything is done on the, I got a lot on the guy's name of the building. Uh, I'm in the little bus that elevates up to the space shuttle door. Uh, the CTV. I think that's it. I think that's it. So this, uh, when they land, you know, they land in airplane style. This vehicle elevates up. It hooks up to the door of the shuttle. And it's like a suit room on wheels. So each crew member comes out of the shuttle after they land. And mind you, they're going to be a little woozy. They've been in space with no gravity. And they're going to, you know, and everything's different. You know, come back. Some some a little green around the gills when they get off. Some are actually vomiting. And some actually have to even sit in a wheelchair and not just lean against us to walk to the chair. Some are just that weak. It just depends on the person. So I'm waiting and waiting for me to come off and... She's the last one, and she walks off. It had no effect on her at all. She walked off like she hadn't even been in space. <laughs> you know? We're helping everybody else sit out and everything. She just came and sat out. I took her suit off, and we're chatting away like she just walked in from the next room. <laughs> and so, yeah, we help them take their uh, equipment off, and we get it all packed up and take, and then this little suit roll on wheels or drive us back to the real suit room. And everybody will get off there. And there's a flight doctor on board um, also in case they're needed. You know, somebody doesn't feel it might feel that bad when they need the doctor. And they want to check them out and make sure they're okay. And back in the old days, you know, they, they used to walk down and kick the tires and all of that. But they didn't do it. I don't think they did it for SCS 47. I think they all all that. I can't remember. It's been so long ago. But, uh, yeah, then they go back to the suit room and we uh, process the gear, get it all packed up and send it back to Houston. Oh, so that's where everything is, uh, all the training and everything takes place is in Houston. And we go down the floor to floor. They're practice launch and for actual launch, of course. And sometimes they got to land in California, depending on weather and everything. Are the suits reusable? It sounds like it has to be fitted specifically to that person. Can a second person wear it or is it their suit for their career? And that's what, what the funny part is that I was shocked when I arrived here. In the Air Force, each pilot had their own two sets of equipment. They're all two suits, they're all two helmets, all everything just stairs because they flew daily in the Air Force, you know. And then here, which it made sense, you know, the space shuttle crews fly every now and then. And then you won't have like the same exact people flying on the space shuttle crew. So I can see why they didn't have their own suits. But no, they did not have their own suits. May have a suit on today. Tomorrow, somebody else her size will have that on. <laughs> we have to adjust all the, they come in like small, medium, large, extra large. And then the arms, legs, and the waist area has uh, lacing, kind of like a corset uh, type situation where you can tighten it up to make the arms shorter, legs, waist, or you can loosen it up to make them longer. You know, if you understand what I'm talking about? Talking about? I think so. Yeah. So it's like the arms has two sets of laces. So if there's somebody with long arms, I wouldn't have to tighten them if I let the laces all the way out. And the way I explain it to the kids is like when they have their shoes on, they loosen up their laces, their shoes get bigger. When they tighten up the tie them, 
now they're smaller and tighter on their foot. So that's the same situation with the arms and the legs and the waist. If I tighten up the laces, it's going to make it shorter in the waist, make the arms shorter, make the legs shorter. So the person that's putting on the suit, they may wear a medium, but somebody ahead of them wore a medium, but they had a little longer legs. So I would have the lacing arm waist all the way out. And we have notes of all of this, everything for each crew member from what kind of pencil they like, what pocket they want their pencil in, all the way up to the lacing sizes. Like, do they want their, is it better for them to have their lacing three quarters inch let out, half inch let out? You know, we have all of that documented. So when it's time to prepare that suit for that particular astronaut, we have to set it up exactly how it needs to be per that, per that information. So no, they don't have home suits. <laughs> is she someone you were able to keep in touch with after that mission? I did keep in touch with her, but uh, it's not, there's been so many years now till now. I mean, I have her number, but we're not like besties, you know what I'm saying? We worked together for that mission. She had me come to a couple of events because, you know, she has a science and technology camp. I don't know if she still has that, but at the time, within the those, about, probably about the five years or so after she launched, because, you know, she only did one, uh, went up once. She had me come and speak to the kids at her camp. And she, oh, she recognized me at her Women of Color uh, event she had. I want to say it was about 2005 or 2007. She had an event where she was honoring a lot of uh, women of color in air and aviation bills. So I think that was pretty much the last time. I've seen her. I've seen her at a couple events. But no, we don't just be like on my phone talking and chatting. But it sounds like you both have in common uh, a passion for speaking to children. Yes. I know I do. <laughs> I do, for sure. I haven't really been keeping up with what she's been doing as far as that. Do you want to share about why you have such a passion for telling children about your, your job and your career? The reason I have that passion is because as I didn't know what that all these careers were available, I'm sure a lot of other children, especially uh, children of color, don't realize that all these careers are here with the space program, and a lot of them don't require a college degree. A lot of people are probably scared because they think they think NASA, they automatically think a PhD, five degrees and all this. There's so many background careers with the space program. And even more so now because you have so many other different entities going to space, not just NASA, so many other opportunities. And you it's a lot of them that don't require a college degree. So I don't want them to feel like they're less than or there's no way they can work with the space program if they don't have a college degree because I'm a prime example. Even though I, now I did have, but they still, I don't want them to know they still have to work hard because I did have my Air Force training that prepared me for my career. But that's why my main thing. And then I just love seeing a little light bulbs come on in their face, even with me being an author. You know, a lot of kids are surprised that I wrote the book when I'm reading it to them. They think I'm just somebody that came to read the book to them. And I tell them I actually wrote the book. And then that makes them feel like, hey, I could write a book. I can, you know, I can do that too. But they see somebody that look like them. And not just, you know, not just uh, black kids and brown kids, of course, but for any kid. But I'm really gearing towards black kids because I'm black. And I know that they don't get those opportunities as easily as some others do. So I want them to know and let them see a real person. I'm a mom. I like to play dress up. I like to do all these different things. I'm not just a NASA robot, you know. I'm not just a space program robot. I'm a real person. And you can do it, too. I'm just like your mom and dad. You can do it, too. When you were a little kid, did you have an interest in space? Did you think space was something that would be part of your life? When I was a little kid, Christina, I would lie out in the yard, a little grassy knoll, and look up at the sky and be like, one day I will work with the space program. Mm -hmm. 
That's not true at all. I had no idea what I was going to do. I thought I might be like a kindergarten teacher for a minute because I was pretty good with kids because I had to help raise my nieces and nephews. And then I thought I might be a stewardess after I saw a stewardess on a plane in the sixth grade when I got to fly on a plane to Portland, Oregon. And I blew that away. And so that's why I said when I got to high school, I had no idea what I was going to do. Because I didn't know I was going to go to college. I just, I didn't know. And so that's why, I, once again, I said my job chose me. I was very fortunate that something that was chosen for me ended up being my passion. And I truly loved my job all the way up to the last day. I mean, I still love it. And I'm not even there anymore. I hadn't been there since 2012. And I love it just like I was still working there. You mentioned a few minutes ago that when uh, Dr. Jemison came in, there were all these white guys and there was you. It sounds like there weren't any other women in the room. And in looking at your bio, I saw that you led the first and only all-female suit tech crew. Yep. We only had enough women one time, and that was years later. That wasn't in 92, by no means. That was, um, it was one other lady there when I got there. But I was the only black person, period, when I got there. And so later on, some other ladies cross-trained from some other departments and came into our lab. And so we had enough girls one time. Cause they eventually they left. People did, the girls just didn't stay in there for some reason. Um, so when we had that en- enough one time for STS seventy eight, I was like, told my supervisor we have to do an all girls tech room, he let them do it. So I was so proud of that that you know we finally had enough girls in our department because we didn't have many at any given time. So I got to lead that crew because I was a crew chief at the time when that happened. Do you feel like that's changing or are the numbers still really off? Well, since I'm not there right now, I'm not sure, but they, it was changing while I was there, as I said, because when I got there, it was only me and another lady, and then it grew. And I, when I became manager, I actually made sure I brought in more women and more uh, people of color when I was in the position to do so. But yeah, I'm sure it's better now, but uh, Crew Escape Equipment is no longer around because it was strictly a space shuttle job. Now, with the Artemis program, I have no idea who they have hired as suit technicians and, and all, you know. I saw on your website that you have a t-shirt that says hidden no more. Exactly. What was the inspiration for that t-shirt? The inspiration for that was I didn't, um, when the movie Hidden Figures came out, I thought it was a fictional movie. I had no idea those women actually were real people. I was at, uh, with the space for around 22 years and I never heard of any of them. There was never a mention, no plaque on the wall, no nothing. And for, and I got, I was pissed, to be blunt. I was not happy when I found out they were real people because I thought about how many of us they could have inspired and made a, you know, we would have thought about space program if we knew that people that looked like us were working there and doing things, you know. But they were hidden, so hence the, the name of the movie. And so I started thinking, I was like, I wonder if people know the career I had or what I did in my career. And so I reached out and told my story to um, local my hometown newspaper in Mississippi, Moss Point, Mississippi. And after that, it got put on social media and it kind of started spreading. And I'm thinking that I wasn't hidden. I didn't consider myself hidden because I'm in photos with astronauts. I'm in little video clips with the astronauts. But I was hidden in plain sight. It's like all they focus on, they look at the pictures and things, is the astronaut. They don't see the other people in the picture. But, you know, nobody ever once said, who is that lady in the picture with Mae Jemison? Who is that lady, you know? Who was the other person? So I was hitting in plain sight. And so that's that's what hence 
hence the t-shirt, it no more, after I told my story. And I said, hopefully I can inspire some kids to work with the space program and let them know about the lesser known behind the scenes jobs that are here for the taking. On I mean, you've recently written a picture book that's inspired by all of your work and it's called Suit Up for Launch with Shay. Can you tell us about writing the book and what inspired you to do that? Writing Suit Up for Launch with Shay was long overdue. I wanted to write a book when I was still working with the space program, but then I put it off because I thought it might be too much red tape and they may limit me in what I can say or tell me that I can't say this or that. And I was just like, you know what, I'll just wait and do it later. And then, of course, I forgot about it and didn't think anything else about it and life happening and you know, growing family and everything. And so after uh, I separated, you know, after the space shuttle program ended, I had some little time on my hand. But I still put her off. I was doing a whole lot of volunteer work and all this other, and reading other people's books, <laughs> you know, to the kids when I volunteer. And finally, when COVID hit, I think we got a whole lot of authors and podcasts and everything came out at that time because we all had time to sit down. We couldn't go anywhere. So it was a perfect time. So it's always been in my head. So it only took, I don't even think it was an hour. It might have been 30 minutes to write it. And I used pencil and paper. I didn't even type it. So I can make little sketches of what I want to be on the certain pages and stuff. I'm not an artist by no means, but it was stick figures. And so I wrote it, like I said, with 30 minutes to an hour. I can't even remember. I think it was about 30 minutes. It didn't take long. And I wanted the book, of course, to leave my legacy and to make sure people knew about the orange spacesuit and this other career, as I mentioned earlier, that a lot of people, I didn't know what spacesuit technician was until I got into the field. So I wanted to make sure people knew about it. And I wanted to make it in a conversation, not just uh, me telling people like a textbook. So I made it a mother and daughter conversation. And the mom being a former suit tech, you know, tells her kid all about it while they're getting ready to play dress up as an astronaut. So she made it a teachable moment and told her before she played dress up, we're going to learn about, I'm going to tell you all about the suit and what it's for and everything. And so that's how that came about. And the illustrator, Christy El Pimenta, did an amazing job. She took my vision and she just put it right there. You know, picture book is nothing like the pictures, right? So she did great. She put, and she added some little extra stuff I didn't know I needed when she drew some of the pictures. <laughs> Good illustrators definitely make the book. So that's why I wrote it. I wanted to make sure kids knew that it's not just a costume. They might see that orange suit and think, oh, it's just a pretty little orange suit. They just put it on to look like an astronaut. Like, no, it's life-sustaining equipment. They wear it in case they have an emergency aboard the space shuttle or if they have to bail out from the space shuttle to help protect them. And you made sure to cover some of the most common questions that kids ask you when you have them opportunities to talk to schools. You you covered that in the book as well. Do you want to share a couple of the key questions that people always want to ask you? Mm-hmm. I sure will. And that's the premise of the book. It's all the questions that I used to get asked when I want to talk at schools and things. So one of the main ones, why is it orange? And I already alluded to that. Orange is easily seen, <laughs> no matter where you are. If they're, you know, when they bail out, 90% chance they're going to be over water. So you can see orange really easily. And also they have a life wrap that's orange and yellow. So they got all kind of brightness going on. And of course they have beacons and radios going off and stuff. So that's why it's orange. It's a universal color. It can be seen easily. How do they go to the bathroom in the suit? They wear a diaper, but it's their choice. They don't have to wear it. It's up to them. But I always tell the kids that they don't wear the diaper and they have an accident. The accident is going to go to space with them. And I'm not going to be there to clean it for. (laughs) 
uh, talk them into wearing their diaper whenever possible. I even had to have a couple of crew members out. And because, you know, you've been trained your whole life not to go on yourself, they, they just had a hard time doing it. So I get them the diaper, say, take it home in the privacy of your own restroom. You put it on, lie in the bathtub like you're lying in the space shuttle, and just make yourself use it. Because you want to not have to worry about who being in your suit because you didn't wear your diaper. Because they have to suit on four hours before they launch. They get suited up four hours prior to launch. Then they're lying out on the pad with all about three hours. Check, check, and recheck. And that's how they have these restrooms if they have to go within the diaper. And the other one, how long does it take to put the suit on? It only takes about five minutes. As I mentioned earlier, you know, you put one leg, one leg, one arm, one arm, pop your head through, zip it up. And the other stuff goes on really quick. The other little pieces, the gloves and the, and the helmet and the cap and the boots. And it'll be a little more challenging when they're in space because it's moving, floating. <laughs> so they help each other while they're in space. They have the buddy system, which is why they practice here on Earth so much. So they can be ready when they're in space. And those are three of the most common questions. Other than being orange, is it made out of a special fabric? Yeah, they have spe- yeah, the, uh, the outer layer, the orange cover is uh, no mix. So it's fire retardant, not fireproof. And then you have the bladder, which is uh, Gore-Tex. So it's breathable, but it doesn't allow water to get in. But it, you know, it's breathable, so it's not as hot as the partial pressure suit was. You must get asked a lot of questions. Are there questions that you wish people would ask you? Oh. Uh... I've gotten asked uh, everything, so I know it's nothing I could think of that I wish somebody would have asked me. Uh, some of the something that I did want to share was that um, I want kids to know, just overall, that they can always be great. They can always make the right choices. They know right from wrong, you know. Because when I was growing up, I was exposed to some things, but I knew that wasn't right, so I didn't do it. You know, I knew it wasn't right. So I could have easily, because I've seen a grown-up do it, I could have just did it because I saw the grown-up doing it thinking it's okay. But I just want them to know that they have their own mind, they know right from wrong, and to just always try to do right. To me, it's easier to do right. But you have to really, really think about everything. Everything. And I'm not talking, nowadays they have it worse because everything's on, on display, on social media. So anything they say or do, it can really hurt them now, you know, in the long run for their future. We don't have to worry about that so much as, as children because that was back then when we didn't have all this technology. I just want them to really think about choices they make and just always try to do the right thing. Because, I mean, it could just get you so much further. And I think that really helped me by having that attitude that helped me a lot in my career. With You know, because I, if I didn't have that type of attitude to try to always do the right thing and work hard, I wouldn't have, no way I would have gotten to where I was, where I did get, and still going. Now that your book is out in the world, do you think about writing another book? Oh, yeah, my other book is written. It just has to get illustrated. It's Suit Up to Dive with Shay, like a little series going. My husband is a diver with the space program over at the Neutral Buoyancy Lab with astronauts trained. The big pool. So that's the next one, Sit Up to Dive with Shay. So ho- I'm hoping by the end of the year, the illustrations will be done. But, you know, life happens. But that's what I'm shooting for, hopefully before Christmas. Can you tell us a little more about that? I don't know much about the, oh, the dive. Okay. So over at the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, it's the Sunny Carter Training Facility. That's where the astronauts train underwater because it's the closest on Earth that they can get to a weightless environment. So 
So to practice their spacewalks, they have a life-size um, space station underwater. They put on their big white suits the, that they do their uh, spacewalks in. They get put into the pool, and they practice like if they're up, up in space doing their spacewalks, working on something. You know, they have to repair something or whatever. They practice it underwater at the pool. My husband is a diver who, a camera diver. So while they're underwater doing that, he's underwater with his camera recording them so they can use it for training later. They can watch it and see what they did right, wrong, or, you know, whatever. They can watch the footage. So he does that. That's his job. He's been doing it for like 20-odd years. Been a di uh, camera diver. And he also helps build the mock-ups that they put in the water. And he can repair them real time instead of bringing the whole mock up out the water, which would cost more than somebody going down real time and just making the repair. So yeah, so I want the kids, and that's another career that doesn't require a college degree. A lot of kids probably don't even know that you can be a scuba diver with NASA with space program. So I want to shine light on that as well. And it'll be the same characters. Yes, Shay will still be there. So look to dive with Shay. What surprised you the most about your job? That it was, well, what surprised me most is that I got, got hired so easily at first. Because <laughs> I thought with NASA, I would have to, you know, with space program, I'd have to come out and do a panel or two interviews and then they make a decision. But no, it's a regular job. Get a cursory call. And because somebody somebody sponsored me and spoke up for me in that room when I wasn't there. And, and you know, brought me on. Uh, what surprised me most as far as the work, hmm, I guess I did go back to the Air Force because when I got to the space program, it didn't really surprise me because I already knew how to do the job. So then the Air Force was surprised me the most. The Yuri collection device that they had on the suit. <laughs> I didn't even think about how they would go to the restroom when I first started working in the Air Force. Uh, you know, you just don't, you don't have to blind, you're not even thinking about it. So they, they didn't wear diapers. They had a urine collection device. That was surprising to me. And this is where they wore like a huge, uh, look like a look like a, a thicker version of a condom that the crew members would wear over them. And there was a hole in underwear and they would put this on and it looks up to uh, something, a thing in their suit, which would go out the suit leg and out into the aircraft. So that's how they urinate. And you know, the, like say the pilots in the U-2 flew for eight, nine hours, so they really needed it. And then the SR-71 pilots, you know, two, two and a half hours. I mean, they wore it, but they didn't, you know, they could probably hold it if they wanted to. But they ate two food and stuff like that, so they didn't have anything for that. So they had an accident that would be bad because the suit's pretty much, just, you can't get that smell out. It's hard. A lot of times you have to just put a whole new bladder in the suit. So, yeah, that, the whole um, eating and body function part was a surprising when I first got in the Air Force with the suit, suited side of the house. What were some of the biggest challenges that you had? Well, it was just personal. It wasn't never really work as far as, you know, it was hard to leave my babies once I had my family to travel a lot to go back and forth to Florida and California with my job. So thankfully I had a great husband that was able to hold down the fort while I, you know, went back and forth with my career because he knew I loved my job. So he was never like, oh, no, you need to stay humble. You know, he, he, we were truly a team. We're still, we still are, but he was truly a team player. You know, wasn't like, oh, they're just my kids, <laughs> you know. So he held down the fort whenever I had to travel. And fortunately, his job didn't have him traveling, so it worked out good. So that was challenging. The job itself was easy. 
and I was always uh, judged on my work. I was never, I never had any racial issues. People ask me that a lot. You know, was it hard being a black woman working in it? Not at all. My work spoke for me. My work spoke for me. And I spoke for myself, too. I didn't let anybody walk all over me or treat me disrespectfully. So, no, no challenges with the career part. But just leaving my family hard was, is hard. Are there myths or misconceptions that people have about surprising? Of what? Misconceptions of what? Of what your job is or... What oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They think most of uh, spatial launch that we just sat around and wait for it to come back. That's all we did is just, it goes up and we just sit around and put all our thumbs until it lands in a week or so, week or two. Now, there would be four to five astronaut crews in training at one time. So we're constantly busy. Suits and equipment is constantly getting damaged and needing repairs. They're training. There are training events on the calendar every day, except on the weekends, unless you're traveling. Sometimes you have to work on the weekends when you're traveling, on travel. But no, they're constantly training. You're constantly repairing. You have training suits. You have flight suits. You have people that's putting holes in the suits. So now you got to patch it and redo all of the testing. And then they put it on and you got to test it again. So it was a constant cycle. Parts and pieces come off the suit that have to be uh, torn down and built up separately. Then put back on the suit and then tested as a whole. The suit has to get tested without all those pieces. It, it's a, It was crazy busy all the time. So it's surprising that people thought we didn't, that's all we did, suit them up for launch and then sit and wait for them to come back. That that was it. It was a very, very busy job. Very, oof. I was, I was always busy. I don't know why people thought we didn't do anything. But yeah, that surprised me that people think you, that's all we did, was just suit them up for launch and wave bye-bye and wait for them to come up. Were there other misconceptions that surprised you? Not, not that I can think of off the top of my head. But that was the main one that people thought we didn't do much. Because they thought there was one crew at a time that you were suiting up. That's what I'm assuming they thought. It was just that one little crew going in space right that moment. Not that they've been training for a year prior. <laughs> and like I said, all the other crews are training a year prior as well. So everybody's training a year before their launch. It doesn't stop because that one went in space. It's constant. What would you like to see going forward? Uh, it's, I, it seems like it's happening, but I'd love to see more, more diversity, of course, and inclusion, not just that, that facial, you know, just on the outside, oh, we're being diverse, but are you including them in making decisions? Are you taking what they say to heart? Are you respecting their, their, um, input? So it needs to be a lot more inclusion going on. The spade, like I say, it looks like it's becoming more diverse and, and more women and all that, that it can always be better. So that's what I'm hoping, and I'm hoping more kids stay interested in the space program because they're the future. It's not going to go on if they're not interested and want to be a part of it. What do you hope listeners will take away? I hope they take away that there are, as I've already mentioned, that there are so many opportunities to work with the space program besides being an astronaut or a rocket scientist. There's so many opportunities out here for whoever, not just children, Whoever wants to work with the space program, you just have to put forth the effort. Of course, you got to do some work. It's not just going to be given to you. But and it's, it needs to be kept alive. You know, I want them to take away that all these careers are out here for the taking. Go look on the NASA.gov websites and all the other space groups that are out here now. Look on their websites and see what they have to offer. 
get mentors, reach out to people. It's so it's so much easier now with social distance. You know, if you see something you're interested in, reach out to somebody that's in that field. Don't just give up on yourself. You know, don't shut shut it. Don't shut yourself down before you even give it a try. Talk yourself out of something like, oh, I can't do that. So I want them to take away that there's a lot of opportunities out here and there's space for everyone. Before we started taping, I shared with you that I looked at some of their reviews of your book. Mm-hmm. And overwhelmingly, the the adults who bought it, because adults typically buy books for young people, uh, talked about how they wanted to read the whole book first and how some of them had a hard time actually giving it to the child they bought it for. So they bought more copies. And yeah. um, can you believe it? <laughs> I can because I think picture books are such an amazing resource for all ages. And I think for topics like this that most of us don't know about. We don't get told about the suits and who's in charge of them and all the intricacies of it. It's a way we can jump into the topic too. And you'll feel a little more educated because you have the, like I said, the pictures right there. And then you can even go look it up and see the real suit and compare, you know, then it'd be like, oh, okay, okay. You know, you it'll click more. But that's what's so great about picture books that you actually have the picture there. And then, like I said, I, break, I do it in a kid-friendly way, but it's not dumbed down to where you know, an adult won't understand, I mean, won't enjoy it too. Sometimes the kid books are like, you know, it's a busy spider type stuff and it's not like that. It's actually telling the kid about the suit where they can understand and it in comparison to something that they may know, you know, like with the shoelaces and the lacing and the suit, I, I use shoelaces, uh, the late neck part of the suit, I told them it's like a fishing net, just to give them a visual, of, you know, to make them kind of understand what it is. Instead of just happening, like so you only got to look at the pictures, but I'm trying to explain it to you where you can envision it in your mind too. But I, I love my book and I'm not partial to it, but I really do. And it's pretty much, as I mentioned, it's pretty much what I would say to the kids when I went out to schools and community events when I actually worked with the space program. It's a lot of the questions the children would ask. And if I had a shower group, I'd break the ice and ask the questions and they just tell them, you know, tell them the answers and then they'd loosen up eventually. Because I'd have a real suit with me then. An actual suit and I would inflate it so they can take pictures with it and touch it and fill it and you know so and it just get to pique their interest that they may want to work with the space program in some type of capacity you know so I love build up my job I don't know if you can tell <laughs> I'm not there. is the book in part what you wish uh, you had done uh it's not Really what I wish I had known, I wish I could have had that with my mom. That's why I made it a mother and daughter conversation. I lost my mother. She was still in a car accident when I was in, right after I had completed second grade. I was eight. I used to say seven because I thought second grade, seven years old. But I was eight, actually, because it was August and my birthday was in February. So I had just finished, you know, it was the summer of me going to the third grade. So because I didn't have that, that's why I chose to make it that type of situation. The boys left the house and, and mom and daughter time and. And she's explaining everything to her daughter. And I always, every time something great happens or any kind of accomplishment, I always wonder, you know, what my mother thought, you know, wish she was here to be all proud of me and everything. And I'm sure she is, but, you know, to not have her here in person all those years, it really, it gets to me sometimes. Every time I say I have any kind of achievement, I, you always want to look and see, what do you think, mom? You know, but I didn't have that, but I had to be strong and still persevere. You know, and that's another thing I tell the kids, you know, I don't, don't use that, use that as an excuse. You know, if you don't have your mom or dad, I hadn't either. And, and I still, you know, tried to make something of myself. Thank you so much for being here today, Sharon McDougall, and sharing with us about your career and about your new book. 
suit up for launch with Shay. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.